Well, welcome to this evening's uh, Ralph Miliband uh, lecture in the series on the we have been running this academic year and will continue to run on the restructuring of world power. Uh, this evening's topic is right at the heart of this set of considerations, the tensions of international power restructuring in a shifting global economy. And for me, it's a complete and absolute pleasure to welcome Danny Kwa here to join us this evening. Um, he is a colleague, a co-director of LSE Global Governance, a friend, someone who I'm defining projects within that will um, uh, engage our work very much into the future. Danny Kwa is a professor of economics, of course, here at the LSE. He's, as I said, the co-director of LSE Global Governance and the form of the head, former head of the LSE's department, Stella Department of Economics. Born in Malaysia, he received his education at Princeton and Harvard University. His research covers a great diversity of, of topics. Let me just mention a few. Economic growth, income distribution and equality, technology and technology change, intellectual property rights, and now major considerations of the changing balance of economic power in the world. Danny has many affiliations other than these. I will just mention a few more. He's a council member on Malaysia's National Economic Advisory Board, a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Economic Imbalances, and he serves on the steering committee of the Abu Dhabi uh, Economics Research Agency. Apart from that, of course, his most distinguished office is that of uh, editor of Global Policy. That's a sort of private remark. And we thank you for what you are doing on Global Policy. Uh, in addition, of course, in the affiliations of the LSE, I should actually mention two others. He's a senior fellow at LSE Ideas and also of the Center for the Study of Human Rights. Danny Kwa, Professor Blanc Kwa, is an extraordinary prolific academic. Uh, writer of, um, uh, of key and defining pieces over a long period of time. He's also a blogger, an incredibly energetic blogger. And in case you also don't know, he's a Taekwondo champion. The relevance of that this evening is you should be sure of the grounds of your questions. So please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I know this is my home institution, and it sounds a little bit peculiar to say that. But not very many uh, economic colleagues participate in public lectures in the evenings. And every time I come here to do this, I, I do feel a little bit out of place. Um, the topic, as David has said, is about the tensions of international power. Very much, sorry. Um, this seems to be a solitary slide. My. <laughs> Okay, so while that's going on, um, my topic is about international power and its restructuring. And my economic roots are revealed in how I think that I'm going to try and argue, um, not inconsistent with what many other people say, that 
<coughs> a lot of this is being driven by an economic dynamic that's running quite a bit ahead of the political and institutional changes that are needed. The kinds of changes that I'm talking about are not um, in in any audience of this for any audience of this kind are not un, it's not unfamiliar territory. As Charles Barkley Roger, who is you know helped organize this event, said in a book review um, just last week, the shelves of bookstores are virtually overflowing with volumes on America's decline and the fall of neoliberalism. When we think about a shift in international power, invariably, that's the kind of shift we must have in mind. America at this point sits at the top table. It is the unchallenged mega power. Therefore, any shift must come associated with a decline of the US position. Now, in the spectrum of conjectures about the nature of this decline, given that there are already volumes overflowing bookshelves on this, given that this entire lecture series is going to be about precisely this, you might imagine it's a, it's a little bit difficult to situate oneself in this range and then be distinguished for having argued something that's very different. You could take an extreme and say nothing is going to change, the world will continue the way it has been. Or you take the other extreme, oh no, oh no, we're all going to die tomorrow. And between, in between that, those two extremes, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. What I would like to do this evening is to try and draw on my other background in economics and to try and present to you a set of empirical evidence that points us in a specific direction. What are the range of forces that we can identify, measure, and calibrate that help us think about this impending change if such impending change is on the cards? The evidence that one can bring to bear on this will, for some of you, will already be familiar, if not in details, at least in rhetoric, because everyone who talks about international power shifts eventually has to come back to evidence of this kind. But I think that's okay, because the evidence that I want to present sets down for us a firm basis from which to move forward. Many of the other things we might think about in terms of international power shifts are prejudices or murky estimates or conjectures that we have somehow convinced ourselves are facts. And the problem in this, as in many other areas of applied empirical evidence building, the problem is not really ignorance of the facts but the strength of preconceived ideas. And it's by breaking down some of these preconceived ideas that we can take the argument forwards. Now, I don't feel so bad trying to do this. I'm on pretty good territory that many others more distinguished have trod. Hans Rosling, 
who just this last weekend appeared in BBC 4's The Joy of Stats, who gives numerous TED Talks on statistics and bringing statistics to bear on common problems in a way that many of us would not have ordinarily thought about. He describes how he started this process of bringing statistics to bear on statistics and statistical evidence to bear on problems that many people think have already been solved to their satisfaction. And the way he did this was when he began, when he started to teach. He's a statistician, medical scientist, but one year he was assigned the task of teaching economic development to undergraduates. Economic development of a flavor that he did not, was not necessarily his first professional calling, but nonetheless it was something that he had lived through and he wanted to use statistics to think this through. And so he thought he would give a little bit of a test to make sure that what he was going to be talking about would actually carry value. Because of everything that he, as a dabbler in economic development, but much more expert in statistics, if everything he was going to talk about was something that everybody else already knew, there was going to be a little value added in his discussion. So what he did was he crafted a test of five questions, either or, this or that, yes or no questions. And he started giving this test to the undergraduates that he taught. These were some of Sweden's best undergraduates. Now, with five such questions, if you take the normal statistical device, the random device, of simply flipping a coin to say yes or no to each question, the number of questions that you'd get right would be two and a half. Or if you set a chimpanzee to choosing the answers to these questions, on average, the number of questions that the chimpanzee would get right would be two and a half. When he applied this test to the best undergraduates he could find that he was teaching, the average number of correct questions that his undergraduates got quickly zeroed in, quickly zoomed in on 1.8, with a very small level of uncertainty. His undergraduates were getting these very basic questions about public health, economic development, infant mortality, they were getting them wrong, and they weren't just getting them wrong in a haphazard way. They were getting them wrong with high certainty. They were absolutely confident of the wrong answer. This gave him some comfort, and he plowed on ahead so that he could then give his course on statistics and development. That was his happy news. The unhappy news, well, he concluded that his undergraduates were doing worse than chimpanzees in public matters of public health and economic development. The unhappy news was that he accidentally gave this test to some of his colleagues, some of his professional academic colleagues, many of whom had served on the committee to award the Nobel Prize <laughs> in medicine. And he found that his colleagues did better than the undergraduates but they were basically indistinguishable from chimpanzees. <laughs> Providing basic statistics on large, important questions is something that I think has fine uh, precedent, and that is what I would like to do this evening. 
This question about a shift in international power, just to very quickly make sure that we're looking at the same page, thinking about the same set of issues. By power in, in the international domain, we're thinking about three different possibilities, a combination of three different possibilities. We mean a country is powerful when it has a high measure of being able to influence outcomes that it wishes. If there's a conflagration in the Indian Ocean, the United States has the power to effect or influence an outcome that it sees to its benefit or to the benefit of, of, what, of what it would like to see emerge. When that nation state itself is in direct conflict, not just interested because of outcomes, that nation state should have the ability to emerge victorious. So whether this is a war fought directly or fought by proxy, the nation that is more powerful has the ability to emerge victorious. And then finally, staying away from perhaps more you know, notions of belligerence, aggression, outcomes, a nation is more powerful when it has a higher degree of control over resources. It is these three things that some combination of which will be used to assess power. When we talk about international power shifts, we're talking about a change in the landscape of ways in which you measure these variables. When you have nations measured according to power, there is a number one, number two, number three nation. Okay, in international relations, the way the world has, the way the world looks, there is, it has for the last couple of decades now been one mega power that sits at the top of the table, the United States. There's a constellation of superpowers surrounding it. The reason that we go through this process of figuring out who sits at the top, who sits below as mere superpowers, well, there are three different reasons for thinking about this configuration of power and the endowment of world leadership that that conveys. The three are the following. First, you might think of calling a nation state the world leader and then being interested in whether the set of world outcomes topples that world leader. You might think that that's interesting simply because that is passive scorekeeping. It's like the Academy Award. It's like the Academy Award evening. Yes, there's a big to-do about the announcement of the nominees are, but everything that's interesting in deciding who is the Academy Award winner has already been played through. And the announcement of the Academy Award winner is simply scorekeeping. It's simply a passive reflection of an internal political and economic and social dynamic. One reason for thinking about world leadership and change and a leadership transition is to think that this is simply scorekeeping. Now, if we had the same kind of committee as the Academy Award does, or that FIFA does, or FIFA does, or the Olympic Committee does, or there was a committee to endow and anoint world leadership, then world leadership international power transition would be simply passive scorekeeping. And what you and I would be interested in, what we really should be looking at is the mechanics of what goes on behind the scenes rather than the messy outcome that determines world leadership. Most observers don't think international leadership falls in category one, that is simply passive reflection. Most of us, to use a technical term, think that there's a feedback loop 
between international or global leadership and the distribution of power across nation states in the world. Yes, in the first instance, the distribution of world power determines in the first instance who will likely be the mega power, who will likely be the constellation of mere superpowers, who are the nation states that come after that. But more, we think that whoever has been anointed world leader derives power from that appointment, derives power from that label. There's a feedback loop. And when that kind of a feedback loop occurs, we fall in the domain of what economists call the economics of superstars. There's an underlying distribution of world power that might be formed from the kinds of measurements and factors that I'm going to describe to you in a second. But then, upon determining who the top country is, who the top nation state is, and then historically allowing that country to be the number one world power, that anoints them even greater power. There's a feedback loop that magnifies the distribution of power and position in the world over and above what the underlying fundamentals are. And this feedback loop, in a precise sense, for the current international monetary system, among other things, in the views of some, Gisquette Destang and many continental politicians, gives the United States the acknowledged, unchallenged, number one megapower and exorbitant privilege, where it's allowed to exercise its will over outcomes in the world in a way over and above, beyond what the underlying distribution of power suggests it should. When this feedback loop occurs, or when we conjecture that it's actually there, the outcomes that emerge are not always the efficient, justifiable outcomes. Yes, of course, the nation that's most powerful should be labeled the number one mega power. But if that act of labeling by itself allows that country to engage in economic and political actions that affects the rest of the world over and above what the original distribution of power suggests it should, well, there's a distortion in outcomes, and that distortion might not always be a good thing. And it is this distortion that I want to play up once I go through the set of economic measurements that I will in a minute. In international relations political science theory, as opposed to when economists look at this problem, there's great concern with how the distribution of international power and the possibility for power shifting is most closely associated with the outbreak of great wars. When you read Paul Kennedy and others writing in that vein, the outcome that is analyzed is almost always entirely described in terms of wars, the victors of which then become international leaders. So in a framework that follows the IR perspective rather than the economics perspective, the feedback loop economics of superstars perspective, there are two things to look at. Economic might and technical progress. A state of the world is a situation where the mega power has the world's greatest collection of economic might and the world's greatest 
uh, endowment of technical prowess. A rising, a rising superpower from, a con from the constellation that comes just below that megapower, when risen far enough and it becomes dissatisfied enough with the current configuration, challenges that megapower. And when that challenge occurs, wars break out. Military conflict is how international power shifts occur. And the situation that I've just described is consistent with a range of IR theories ranging from hegemony, hegemon stability, power transition, and variants of these IR theories. An ascendant economic might and technical prowess on the side of the challenger, emerging from a constellation of superpowers that is then dissatisfied with the current status quo, challenges the megapower, that's what leads to wars that's what leads to international power transitions. Okay. Therefore, now turning to the evidence that I want to present to you, a natural collection of measurements to make, the natural collection of Hans Rosling-type basic statistics to construct, is to go out and look at economic might, look at technical prowess, look at the military, and then ask, is the configuration of these variables sufficient to make us wary of an international power transition of the kind that Paul Kennedy or writers after him might recognize? That is the line I want to take. That is the line that at the end of tonight's lecture I will con give a conclusion on. There's of course, I am mindful, of course, that there's an alternative to all of this. And that alternative is that things happen in unexpected ways. Wars break out for no good reason. There's no way to understand this, and it is these wars that lead to international power shifts. Now, I'm, when I think about this kind of a discussion, I'm reminded of debates in the theory of evolution. For a while, the theory of evolution had a group of people who argued that the kind of gradual changes kind of gradual changes that you might follow if you were measuring economic might, technical prowess, military force, completely blinds you to how evolution occurs in fits and starts. It is through surprises and shocks that you get these kinds of evolutionary changes. Similarly here, it is through surprises and shocks and unexpected events that you get international power transitions or changes in the world regime. It turns out that in that scientific, in that discussion of evolution science, um, the people who are arguing for these fits and starts, the so-called punctuated equilibrium, argue their position sufficiently vehemently that their way of thinking became known as evolution by jerks. Okay, I want to suggest that here too, there's the possibility that you might get world regime change by jerks. That is not a kind of line I want to follow. I want to suggest that the kind of international power shifts we're going to look at will be of a kind that we can understand in terms of these basic economic measurements. So to begin this, I'm going to, uh, I need to dim the lights. That's why I was up here a minute ago futzing around with this. 
If we're going to be looking at the distribution of power across the globe, well, let's actually do that. Let's actually step off the planet and look at the globe. What does the distribution of economic or technical power look like when you take that step? So this is a picture of the nighttime sky of the planet taken over 48 hours because obviously over any 12-hour period, you know, only part of the Earth is in darkness. But this shows bright lights, big cities in the year 2000. Part of the point I want to make in terms of my basic statistics is a shifting global economy, shifting economic might. But to give you that picture, I need to give you a snapshot of what the world looked like. This is the way the world looked like in the year 2000. Now, I've dimmed the light, so I hope that you can make out, even if you can't make out the coastline, you can see in this part of the map, you can see the bright swath of light that is North America, that's continental United States. You know that when the nighttime, when the sun goes down, night emerges, the United States does not just go to sleep. Not everyone sets down their software programming tools or their investment banking manuals or their manufacturing and agricultural implements, but they go out and they play. And the harder they work during the day, the more economic might they generate during the day, the harder they play at night, the more the nighttime sky gets lit up. So in this picture, you'll see a concentration of lights in the nighttime sky on the eastern seaboard of the United States. If you start out between Boston, running down to New York and Washington, D.C., you see all the clubbing that's going on. You see policy wonks in Washington, D.C. continuing to work away. And as you move westwards in this picture, you see that nighttime sky tail off in the number of lumens that it generates. As you hit the industrial heartland, more of that gets shut down. As you move further into the great Midwest through Utah and Montana, the agricultural heartland, more and more of that is dark at night until once again you get to California and then the nighttime sky gets lit up again. Now as you scan your eye across at, in this picture, you realize very quickly that in the year 2000, it's not just the United States that lights up the nighttime sky, but Western Europe. In the year 2000, remember, this is before we thought financial markets might not be the greatest thing in the world. You know, the city of London continues to flare up the nighttime sky as everyone cranks out new CDOs and CDO squares. At Frankfurt is a hive of activity. And, but as you move eastwards in this picture, you get to Kazakhstan, you get to the great, you get to the other Great Plains, you get to agricultural heartland in Eastern Europe, and the nighttime sky tails off. And then, but if you keep going, then you begin to see the emergence of new clusters of activity. The Indian subcontinent is lit up. You see all of the eastern seaboard of main continental China lit up the same way that the eastern seaboard of the United States is, not to the same great degree, but beginning to see the same kind of frenetic activity. And you see Japan still lighting up the nighttime sky. When we think about e the distribution of economic might across the planet, 
it is this geography that we need to be sensitive to. Now this geography, what we would like to know is how is this geography tending? Given the number one megapower that sits here, are the constellation of superpowers and potential superpowers that you begin to see in the rest of the world, are they rising in luminosity to a point where Paul Kennedy or some other IR scientist might look at this and say, right here, this is when the transition point occurred, and at this transition point, that's when the new challenger is going to rise to potentially challenge the number one megapower. Okay. Now, in this picture, it's hard to tell that dynamic story. The story of international power transition is a story about changes in this picture. So what I did is the following. Flip back the, flip back the lights. And I appreciate, I recognize, that what we were looking at, what we were trying to parse in that picture, was economic activity and economic might in specific locations on the planet. And what we're trying to do is to understand how the configuration of economic activity across locations on the planet changes through time. We're trying to figure out in that dynamic, is there a tipping point? when dissatisfaction with the current world order will lead some challenger to rise up and potentially disrupt the status quo. Well, here's a way to try and think about that dynamic. In this picture, first of all, I picked out some focal points where economic activity occurs. It turns out that you can pick out 700 of these focal points. And the way you do that is the way you do anthropological research in economics now. You go to Google Earth. And on Google Earth, you can scan the planet's surface, identify locations on the planet's surface where sufficient economic activity occurs, where you can put numbers to that economic activity. And then you can assess how that landscape of economic activity changes over time. The way I did this, there are about 700 points on Earth where you can make that statement, the obvious ones, of course, all the capitals in the world, but also Astana in Kazakhstan, there are parts of the Kiribati Islands in the Pacific, uh, there are parts of the Atlantic Ocean where you can measure economic activity. And if you fill out this picture with measurements on economic activity, with economic might, then what you end up realizing is that with these 700 places on Earth, you can calculate a center of gravity for economic activity. And by understanding how this center of gravity for economic activity is shifting, we can try and understand the possible shifts that might occur that would lead to a challenger rising to challenge that status quo. The global economy's center of gravity in 1980 was exactly that point. It was mid-Atlantic. It sat between North America and Western Europe. And yes, there were points east that we could recognize previously from India, from Southeast Asia, even from China, already from, you know, already from China, especially from Japan as well. But the bulk of economic activity, almost 70% of economic activity, and therefore the economic might on the planet, resided in two places continental United States and Western Europe. The midpoint between those two, therefore, would be the world's center of gravity. The world's center of gravity in 1980 was mid-Atlantic. It's set at exactly where that black dot sits. 
I now let Google Earth take me through the 40 years of history from 1980 until 2010. And for each year that I can carry out this exercise, I can also calculate the center of gravity of economic activity and can ask how that changes through time. This is how it changes through time. That black dot over the 40 years after 1980 had drifted inexorably eastwards. <coughs> By 2010, that center of gravity had drifted 4,800 kilometers, three quarters of the Earth's radius, east past Izmir. And then if you ask Google Earth, what are likely potential outcomes going forwards for each of these 700 locations you've told me about? It will spit out for you different possible measures of economic activity associated with 700 places for which you can then calculate a center of gravity. And that center of gravity then depicted in red in this picture ends up on the border between India and China. So even as the cluster, of, even as the North American continent continues to be a strength, an economic strength that does not go away. The world's economic center of gravity is represented by these kinds of, these kinds of pictures have drifted inexorably eastwards. The dots in black show the historical outcome. The dots in red show the projection going forwards until 2050. By 2050, according to this prediction, the United States, Western Europe are not predicted to wither away in economic activity, but they will be dwarfed by the rise of India and China to a point where the center of gravity sits between just India and China. Just as in 1980, the center of gravity sat just between the United States and Western Europe. Now, I want to be clear a number of things that you can tell from this picture, a number of things that you cannot. First of all, if you don't like that red and black depiction of what was happening historically, what's projected forwards, the LSE magazine produced a version of this picture where the shifting center of gravity is depicted as a heat-seeking missile. And as you drift eastwards, as the, as the frenetic activity proceeds faster and faster, well, the points that are the center of gravity cluster around the border between India and China, and they're predicted to remain there. Okay, That they remain there simply means that there is now a new kit on the block. Now, yes, I appreciate that this is something that, as Char Charlie Rogers' um, review suggests, is an effect that many of us are already mindful of, but this quantification, this calib calibration, gives us a precise measure of what this eastwards drift means. What this eastwards picture, eastwards drift does not mean is that the United States and Western Europe no longer become viable economic entities. They will remain powerful, and perhaps it's by their remaining powerful that the source for potential conflict arises most dramatically. Let me give you a description a visual depiction of what it means for the United States and Western Europe to remain vital and powerful.
apologize, small technical error. The animation that, um, that appears here seems to have vanished, but what this picture would have shown, each of these yellow dots is, uh, is a commercial airline flight filled with real people. And this commercial airline flights, there are thousands of them over each 24-hour period. What this animation shows is the process of these airline flights moving between North America, Western Europe, and the cluster of activity that is the East China. What we see is that these three clusters remain hugely important. And what we would have seen is that even as the East continued to rise, North America and Western Europe do not go away. The eastward drift of the center of gravity simply reflects this rise in a precise way that we can quantify and calibrate this rise of what's going on out east. Now, this rise of what's going on out east, however, is precisely the kind of configuration of changing economic might that IR, international relations observers, look at and say this is when the world becomes gets to its most dangerous situation. It's this situation when there's a challenger to the status quo that becomes dissatisfied with the way the current world currently works that we see the greatest danger for, um, for global conflict. Okay. I want to convince you that while this ongoing dynamic remains, this is actually a force for the good and I want to point then to indicators, metrics, that suggest that this risk that we perceive of international conflict is much lower than one might at first think. So first, I want to tell you the good news. This eastwards drift of economic activity, how can this be good news? Well, this can be good news in that I want to show you a simple fact that says that this eastwards drift is part of what saved the global economy through the current through the, the current global economic crisis. Okay. Now, this table contains far too many numbers to present in a lecture like this. I'm going to pull out pieces from here in a minute. But what this is a table of is it shows the relative contribution to the global economy from growth across different parts of the world. And it shows this as a fraction of the growth that's generated in the United States. This is growth measured in actual market exchange rates. So it's measured in currency values that people everywhere in the world would be using to purchase Nokia cell phones, Boeing jetliners, or Italian fashion and design. The early part of our history, the history that we're concerned with, the period between 1960 and 1990, saw, that saw China contributing to global economic growth 8% what the United States did. 8% is basically rounding error. The United States wouldn't even notice if 8% perturbed its GDP contribution. But that's what China was contributing between 1960 and 1990. If we cast our eye down this column, we see that the so-called other BRIC countries, India, Brazil, Russia, all of emerging East Asia, contributed 
piddling amount to the global economy in terms of growth, the other large 500-pound gorilla in the global economy was the euro area between those two, those few decades contributing three quarters to the global economy what the United States did. If I pull out that column into a picture, this picture shows relative heights which measure the contribution of different parts of the world to the global economy. Anybody looking at this picture would look at emerging East Asia, Pacific region, China, or any of the other BRIC economies and say, no threat here. There's nothing worth speaking about economically in terms of contribution to the global economy. There's the Euro area, but they are my friends. That's the constellation of superpowers that would support what the mega power wishes to do. By 2001, 2008 though, the situation had changed dramatically. Now we know this, we, this is one of those opinions that we might have already from our previous look at what was happening to the shifting center of gravity. By 2001, 2008, a period of high rapid growth for the United States, emerging East Asia was already contributing one United States, basically, to the global economy every year. The same amount, sorry, let me restate that, was contributing the same amount as one United States was doing to the global economy. China alone was contributing 85% of what the United States was doing to the global economy by itself. Remember, by 2008, China was still a very, is still a very poor country. Per capita income in China is only one fifteenth that of the United States. But in terms of its overall growth, even from such low levels of income, it was already contributing one U.S. growth to the global economy a year, the same way that the United States was doing. The euro area has fallen into much lower significance. There are those who remark how India and Brazil will also provide the challenge in economic might to the United States, but at least for the early part of the 21st century, they do not figure anywhere as prominently as East Asia Pacific region and China. Bottom line to this, emerging East Asia Pacific China contributing huge chunks to the global economy the same way that the United States is doing. This by itself is not necessarily so spectacular or convincing, but you might ask ourselves then, what happens during recessions, such as the one that we are going through? I'm gonna go through a couple of these graphs and then very quickly conclude that it is the performance of East Asia Pacific that has actually saved the global economy. And so this shifting center of gravity eastward should be a cause, should be a cause for rejoicing, should be a cause for celebration rather than simply a cause for thinking about this being a threat to the global polity. Okay, now in, 1990, in the year 1990, 1991, in the years 1991, the US economy went into a downturn, US GDP fell. So these ratios of what was happening elsewhere in the world compared to what was happening in the United States, when they are negative, 
that shows that those countries are moving counter-cyclically relative to the United States economy, and to the extent that they are large and negative, are helping to bolster growth in the global economy, even as the U.S. economy is failing to do so. 1990-91, it was still the euro area that was carrying a lot of the weight, counterbalancing the U.S. downturn. Emerging East Asia, Pacific, China, some part, but not huge. But then ask what happened in the current, what's happening in the current global financial crisis. In the current global financial crisis, the euro area has gone the U.S. one better. It is reducing, it is slowing down growth in the global economy even more than the United States is doing. And by contrast, it is East Asia Pacific and China that's continuing to support the global economy. This picture that we were just looking at of the shifting eastward, the eastward shift in the global center of gravity is providing a bolster to growth in the global economy through recessions as much as it is shifting the domain of power, shifting the concentration of economic power. Okay. If we were playing the international relations game at this point. We would then say we see a changing configuration of economic might. This changing configuration of economic might, if it carries along with economic prowess and a bolstering uh, military force, this is when the global economy is most likely to show an international power shift. This is when the potential for wars most likely. I now want to spend five minutes going over these two other factors, telling you this, the basic facts about these two other factors, but suggesting that neither of these domains gives us, much, gives us cause for concern, and that instead we should fall back on how this eastward shift of the global center of gravity is actually a positive outcome. Okay. First, I want to convince you that technical prowess east is actually um, already quite strong. But this technical prowess is moving in a specific direction. Okay, now by 2010, we know China had become the world's largest market for pretty much every high-tech good you want to imagine. Joel Mokir, the economic historian, says that economically advanced economies continue to become even more economically advanced, not just by pushing the frontier, but by raising the average. Not just by improving practice at the very top, but by improving practice in the middle. I want to argue in, in just a very few minutes, without now going back into statistics, why China seems to be, China or East Asia seems to be going that route but that, um, and that you know, this improvement in, in, in technical prowess is a positive outcome. Why? Because think about the direction that China's technical prowess has emerged most forcefully. Yes, China is now the world's largest market for cars, for desktop computers, mobile phones, all that other good stuff. But it's also the world's largest producer of solar panels and wind turbines, the engines of renewable energy and green technology. 
China is estimated to be producing two-thirds of the world's solar panels by the end of this year. Researchers from the United States that have relocated their assembly manufacturing plants for solar manufacturing energies, for solar manufacturing technologies, argue that it is only by moving to China that you get the scale and you get the production capacity that makes it worth their while. Xi'an now holds the latest, largest research laboratory that applied materials, the world's largest supplier of equipment and crucial materials to manufacture semiconductors, solar panels, and flat panel displays. Xi'an is also where Thermal Power Research Institute is based, a world-leading research, world researcher on clean coal technology, a clean coal technology that's been licensed to companies in the United States and in Western Europe, a, a method to turn coal into gas before burning, lowering toxic pollution and carbon footprint. China now is the world's largest manufacturer of solar panels and the world's largest manufacturer of wind turbines. In high-speed public transportation, China's bullet train that connects Guangzhou and Wuhan holds the world's largest the record for the world's largest average train speed for commercial operation, and it covers 664 miles between Guangzhou and Wuhan in three hours, less time than it takes Amtrak in the United States to run its fastest train between Boston and New York, a distance under 200 miles. In China, this Guangzhou-Wuhan train is one of only 42 such high-speed trains that are already in place or planned by the end of next year. And in contrast, the United States hopes to have one such high-speed line by 2014, connecting Tampa and Florida Tampa and Orlando in Florida, pensioners and seekers of entertainment at Disney World, a distance of only 94 miles. China seems to be pushing technology in a way that drives that technology to a level that allows the greatest use in a way that's full, in a way that's economically productive, and in a way that nobody else in the world seems to be pursuing. Okay. So the technical prowess, I would, argue, I would argue, is there, but it is not of a kind that we need to be concerned about if we were militarists. It's not of a kind that we should be thinking uh, negative things about if we were concerned about the fate of the Earth. Even as technology in the rest of the world pushes into directions that keep us entertained, help those of us who are rich on the planet, who are already rich on the planet, live fuller, more complete lives. The technical progress that we see in China, India, and East Asia seems to be driven in a direction that raises the lowest common denominator, that raises practice among those who are engaged in economic activity and raises the productivity of these developments. Finally, let me round out our roadmap of 
statistics around the world relevant for international power transition and talk about the military. Okay. One of the offshoots of international power transition studies is that this obsession with wars as a way to topple the megapower have led to online databases that collect reams and reams of statistics on national military and material capabilities. One of these sites is something called the Correlates of War. And the Correlates of War collects statistics on military achievement. There are many different things one could pull out from this, but I thought I would just pull out two sets of numbers. The first, and these two, num these two sets of numbers compare China and the United States. China, between 2005 and 2007, did have a standing army of over two and a quarter million people. Beyond that, of course, it could draw on reserves to almost triple that number. The United States, by contrast, has a standing army of a little bit more than half of that. What's more interesting, however, is when you look at the last column and you look at military expenditure in different parts of the world, and you look compare China and the United States in particular. China's military expenditure has been ramping up, yes. By latest count, by 2007, it was spending 46 billion US dollars on military equipment. Compare that with the United States. The United States, by 2007, was spending over half a trillion US dollars on military equipment. The United States spends more than 10 times what China does on military equipment. Given this relative balance of military capability and capacity, it would be sheer lunacy for a country like China, even as it is bumping up against a ceiling in terms of economic attainment, it was sheer lunacy for a country like China to seek to engage the United States militarily in any significant way. Here's another statistic. When military intelligence looks at navies, they count out something called full load displacement. That's how big a ship you've got, how much, what volume of seawater you displace when you take your fully loaded ship and you plunk it on the ocean. Well, in 2005, military intelligence estimates that the United States Navy had a total full load displacement of 2.9 million tons. The entire world, rest of the world had a full load displacement, had navies that had a full load displacement of a little bit above that, 3.0 million tons. China? China had a full load displacement about 250,000 tons. China's military capacity, measured in almost any way, is completely dwarfed by anything that the United States has put together. In 2005, there were 34 operating aircraft carriers in the world. The United States operated 24 of these 34. China, exactly zero. Even up to a year ago, China still does not have an operating aircraft carrier. Given this balance of, of military might, again, it would be lunacy for a country like China following the dictates of 
hegemon stabilization theory or power transition theory for a country like China to seek to disrupt the international power structure in the standard military way. Okay. If that's the case, have I led you a merry chase? Why have I given a lecture on international power transition if only to end up telling you there's just no way, no conceivable way that there's any challenge to the United States as mega power today? Well, it turns out that it matters. It matters, however, not militarily or politically, but it matters economically. And I now want to tell you, I want to conclude this lecture by telling you the tensions and the implications of the current configuration of international power, the current situation where the US remains mega power and no other nation state is able to challenge it at this point. Economically, perhaps so, from the center of gravity calculations that we've seen, but not militarily and not in the standard sense, technologically. And here is where the United States is holding the rest of the world to ransom. Here is where the international tension makes clearest why the current configuration of international power, the current feedback loop that comes from naming the United States as the top power at the table remains a difficulty in running the global economy. So this is a picture that shows how in the run-up to the global financial crisis, the United States was running a trade deficit that by 2006 exceeded 800 billion US dollars. The blue line that's in this picture shows the US trade deficit, how much more the United States was borrowing um, how much the United States was borrowing from the rest of the world, how much more the United States was consuming than it was producing. The other line that sits in this picture, the red line, is the GDP of an entire billion people economy, India. And what we see in this picture is that between 1990 and the early 2000s, the U.S. trade deficit started to skyrocket. The U.S. began to borrow from the rest of the world. And in borrowing from the rest of the world, it hit a high point where its borrowing from the rest of the world exceeded the GDP of India. So at that point, the United States was eating one India more than it was producing. How was it able to continue to do this? How was it able, unlike any other country, um, in, in you know, the history of these kinds of international economic transactions, able to engage in such kind of profligate consumption behavior. Well, one conjecture at this point is that it was doing this because China was feeding it trade, sur trade, uh, trade deficit. China sought to sell as much of its goods as possible and so by hoisting this onto the, red, onto the U.S. economy, it was that that made the U.S. run this trade deficit. I want to take us very quickly through that argument and then suggest that it's not a reasonable argument. And I want to talk about how the exorbitant privilege that comes from the United States sitting as the world's megapower is part of what lies behind the ability to do this 
and then conclude. Here's the U.S. bilateral trade balance that the United States was running against China. And sure enough, yes, through the 1990s and early 2000s, this U.S. bilateral trade deficit against China was rising in a way that mirrored what was happening to the overall U.S. trade deficit. However, if you superimpose on this picture, the U.S. trade deficit not just against China, but against the European Union and the oil exporting countries, here in the green line and the red line, or go one better, add the two of them up into this purple line, you see that the United States was running a bilateral trade deficit against the European Union and the oil exporting countries of the same magnitude, scale, and scope that was running against China. And in fact, the United States was running bilateral trade deficits against pretty much everywhere in the rest of the world, not just against China. The ratio, that the trade deficit that was running against China did not rise materially as a fraction of its overall trade deficit. The hypothesis that it was China that was driving the U.S. trade deficit is one that is usefully addressed by Stephen Roach. Stephen points out that yes, the United States has a trade problem, but it's not a bilateral trade problem against China. The United States has a multilateral trade problem with over 100 different trading partners. And it was the US savings and consumption problem that's led to this pattern of global trade deficits and global imbalances in the world. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because the flow of resources associated with this pattern of trade deficits flooded into Western financial markets through the course of the early 2000s and fed into the building up of a trillion dollar infrastructure whose unwinding is the 2008 global financial crisis. So a good question to ask at this point is when the United States was running the trade deficit that it was, if it was not caused by China, what was it caused by? How did it emerge? Giscard d'Estaing pointed out some decades ago that the United States, when it runs a trade deficit, does not have the same kind of problem that other countries that run trade deficits do. Other countries, when they run trade deficits, eventually run out of foreign reserves to continue to pay for these deficits, and they eventually run out of reserves that trade imbalance turns around. The United States, because it pays for its trade deficit in its own currency, never runs out of reserves. This exorbitant privilege that the United States has, because it is the country identified as the world's number one megapower, and so has the ability to issue the world's reserve currency, leads it to be able to run large and persistent trade deficits that, in the main, might not seem all that harmful, but in the outcome, in events such as the 2008 global financial crisis, eventually lead to an unwinding whose implications run, cost the global economy trillions of dollars. And it is this problem that ought to make economists 
interested, ought to make all of us interested in the economic aspect of international power shifts. It is because this problem of global imbalances continue to be exacerbated by a country that issues the world's reserve currency continuing to be the world's largest trade deficit country. Okay, let me conclude. What have I done in this lecture? Well, I've argued that the world in its current configuration remains very distant from the kinds of violent international power restructuring and upheaval that we have seen in previous global power transitions. In previous global power transitions, war has more often than not been called upon to seal the issue of power transition. And that occurs when an emerging challenger nation state becomes powerful enough and dissatisfied enough to break away from the constellation of other mere superpowers and take on the incumbent megapower. I have argued that such wrenching change is unlikely anytime soon. Sure, the economic configuration is there, that shifting global economy running unseemly ahead of a political power transition might make this kind of attention seem imminent. But when we study the actual contours of technical progress, when we look at what actually happens militarily, this kind of violent transition is extremely, should seem to us extremely unlikely. So many of the happier elements of such a configuration for power transition are now present. That's why we've just seen. And if dynamics continue the way they've been headed, the world will become a better place, not least for the billions of human beings who still live in poor and for now relatively disenfranchised nation states. The reason I have suggested that we are likely to see ongoing peace in international power dynamics is based on my reckoning of the global landscape of military capabilities, military and technological capabilities, not the imputed goodwill of humanity generally. Now, this most probable reconfiguration of international power, as it continues, is remarkable. It's remarkable because it will be the first time in a long while put in greater control of circumstances, of global circumstances, the bottom part of humanity, all of whom are seeking primarily one thing, safe, sustainable, continued economic prosperity. And for hundreds of millions of people, international power shifts simply means freedom from poverty and hunger. Thank you. Well, thank you, Danny, for your uh, sustained and optimistic argument about the meaning of these economic shifts. And optimism is, is uh, very much in short supply in most of these economic and political analyses that we read today. So I think the general underlying message of your lecture and of the analysis from which it flows is uh, a much more hopeful one for world economic, political, 
uh, a development with related poverty reduction and so on than many have portrayed. I know there are many questions, Danny, and the time is a little later than we might have thought. We have to leave at eight, so I'd like to ask several people, if I may, to ask you questions, to, to pull out a cluster of questions. I have a couple of my own. And then we'll ask you perhaps to, to, to address those that you think are the most urgent. So where are, do I see? Yes, up there front. Perhaps you could just say who you are, and could the mic come straight to this person at the front? Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Gerard. I'm a Dutch uh, student here at the LSE doing a master's. And my question is, like, what you explain, like, I, I'll take the example you put forward as well about the high-speed trains. And my country has tried to make a high-speed connection, and we all know how big a pro project this is. And I would like to put this beside the military progress. Like, if China is able to make a high-speed train network, which is this big, and you see the US having trouble to realize even one before 2014, and I know, like, from my own experience that it's hard, then why shouldn't it be possible to do, uh, like, a, mi a military uh, advancement, which is way faster, and could be in 10 years, could be there? Okay, thank you. Down here? Yes. The gentleman here at the front? You too. There's a mic coming. Why don't we just take both your questions? Hi, my name is Miguel and, and I'm from Peru, South America. Um, I, I have um, an observation for Mr. Kwa's presentation in the sense that uh, I'll use Chairman Mao's uh, phrase that uh, Western powers were paper tigers. I really believe that nowadays China is a paper, paper, uh, paper tiger in the sense that you have 1.3 billion people, 900 million of them are poor or very poor, and you have extreme income distribution problems within China. You have a, a coastal area that's developing, and you have the western side of, western side of China that's in the same situation as, as previous economic growth. So I think that uh, you have big institutional problems in China to assure that they will become the next power. Thank you. We just pass the mic next. Yes. I'm Shuja from London. Uh, would you agree with me that with increasing prosperity, the prospects of uh, military conflict would reduce? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Anna, could you take the mic? Thank you. I'm Anna from the Centre for Global Governance. Um, I was just wondering what you thought the prospects of the euro becoming a reserve currency might be following the current problems with the in the euro currency area. Right at the back, who's got his hand sky high? Hi, I'm Clemens from Imperial College. Uh, my question is really quick. Um, why did you not mention Africa or South America at all? On your graph, you showed. Sorry, I'm Donald Alexander. Uh, on your graph, you showed the transition eastwards at the centre of economic gravity, but you showed that as if it's a, a fact. But going forward, 30 years, it's not a fact. All sorts of things can happen. I don't know uh, what. Uh, we don't even know the basis, of, or you haven't told us the basis on which those dots were even calculated in the first place, and what assumptions were made. Okay, just one more question from the audience now. Yes. Oh, yes, lady at the hand there, the centre. 
your mic's coming. And then we can get you to respond, and then we'll get one more round. And we can do it. Hi, um, my name's Joanna Kenner. Um, you argued that international peace and prosperity going forward based on a, a comparison of military capability, but presumably India and China have quite equivalent military capability, and as both as strong emerging powers, presumably there's a high risk of conflict between those two countries. Can I, can I just add a couple of questions of my own, Danny, and get you to respond to the, the cluster, as it were? Yes. I mean, they're just two quick questions, really. One is, isn't major war less likely now, not because of China's gentle rise, which is your argument, growing economic strength, mild, mild, less minimum military investment, as it were, but because of growing global interdependence and the mutual dependence of the great powers on each other? I mean, China's growth is absolutely dependent, it has been at least historically, on its export markets in the West. And although this is rebalancing now, the degree of interlock between the great powers is such that any risk of war would disrupt all of them, fundamentally. The world economy would, is so interdependent, oil, not just the effects of oil prices rocketing up to $400, or but the interdependence is such now that the risks of one power striking against another would ricochet through their economies as much as those of their enemies. And the second point I want to make, isn't it, about the darker side of all this. The darker side of all this is, I mean, you're, I think you've told a very striking story, but there's another side of this economic, these patterns we're seeing, which is the shift of economic power, the weakening of international institutions, the end of the old post-war consensus, the emergence of new voices, gridlock in every major international negotiation from Doha to financial market reform, the nuclear proliferation, climate change, which shows that when you have rapid shifts of economic power like this and emerging new voices, the old decision-making structures don't work. And if you have that at exactly the same time as you have major pressing global issues, now on a scale to affect the whole planet without new decision-making process, then it's a darker story that one can tell. <clears throat> Okay, thank you. Um, may I speak now? <laughs> Brief, briefly. <laughs> thank you, David, and, th and thank you everyone for your questions. Usually, when you collect questions, you try and have, <clears throat> I, I think that the, the chair tries to work it so that you can then group questions in some logical way and then, you know, so you actually end up answering three questions rather than nine that get thrown at you. Although what I've noticed is that of the nine questions I have on my, um, on my sheet, none of them have any common factor with any of the other eight. Well, so if you want me to justify my chairing in this lecture, <laughs> it's just that since the time was short and I was keen for yes. to get a variety of questions out to you. Okay. Th that's fine, David. I'll, I'll speak with you about this afterwards in the office. <laughs> So just going down the list then, since I can't seem to break this down into, into logical categories, can high-speed high trains be transformed into military <laughs> capabilities? No, can we take plowshares and hammer them into, into weaponry? Um, the, you know, the, in, the logical, in-principle answer is yes. However, it does not seem that either political inclination or engineering proficiency at this point is anywhere near our allow allowing us to do that. 
the you know the latest uh, fifth generation stealth fighter that you know China launched a first day trial on when Robert Gates was visiting Beijing. You know that by most military anal anal analyst accounts, uh, still years behind what the United States and Western Europe is able to do. Um, it looked like that particular launch on a first day trial just as Gates was in China was more a mix-up on the level of low-level decision-making than it was a challenge thrown at the United States. Just reading what, um, you know, reading, reading about the decisions that have been made, reading about the engineering that's that's gone into these different things, I think it's unlikely that they could be transformed overnight into military capabilities. The difference between China and the United States in running high-speed trains, it seems to me it's not so much a question of engineering ingenuity, but of political will and economic interests. And at this point, it simply does not pay the United States to be able to generate that kind of a high-speed train infrastructure, even though economically, in the long term, once you take into account externalities in global climate change, the environment, and so on, those seem to be attractive propositions. The United States does not seem to be able to capitalize on this. The question about whether China is a paper tiger, I agree with the statement that there are many profound weaknesses still in the Chinese economy and polity. Uh, I have to just dispute one of the facts that was put down, though. China probably, China does have lots of very poor people still. Average income, including all the glitz that you see on the eastern seaboard, including everyone that you see going into the largest LV store in the world in Shanghai, including all of that, China's per capita income is still only 115th that of the United States. It is still a very, very poor country. It is not true, however, that there are 900, there remain 900 very, very poor people in China. What's true is that 30 years ago, China had almost 80% of its population earning less than a dollar a day. Okay, it has reduced that number by 627 million, more than the entire world has done but it's reduced the number of extreme poverty by 627 million. There are still very many extremely poor people. Latest count, about 107 million people in China still live on less than a dollar a day. On average, it's still very poor, but it is not the, it's not the kind of, uh, uh, it's not a kind of failed economic state that one might think, if you think that there are 900 million people who are very poor. Income distribution is high, sure, but most of that income, income distribution inequality is high, certainly. But most of that inequality, most of the very high inequality in China comes from a single source. And that source is the disparity between rural and urban areas. When you look at urban, when you look at income inequality measures within the urban areas, you look at income inequality measures within the rural areas, well, they're comparable, and they're comparable to that we see in most of the rest of the world. Income inequality, in China, the statistics are an artifact of the rural-urban disparity. And it's rural-urban disparity that can be fixed, 
and it's exactly being attacked when the current Chinese political leadership talks about moving investment westwards, away from just the eastern seaboard. Um, is it the case that increasing prosperity reduces military conflicts? Well, here there's also a connection with the question that David asks later about whether with the current pattern of globalization, it is that that makes wars less likely more than uh, anything else. One would like to think so. However, the last time England went to war with Germany, Germany was England's number one trading partner. England was Germany's number two export, uh, export country, export target country. Germany and England were two tightly linked, globally interconnected, e trade interconnected economies, and yet they went to war anyway. Um, so I think that you know the the examples as we go through in history suggest that it could go in either direction. Increasing prosperity might reduce military conflict. Greater trade interconnectedness might reduce military conflict. But you can also see instances where the opposite has happened. Um, there's a very short question about whether the, the euro could potentially become the world's reserve currency now, given the economic straits that the euro area finds itself in. It is rather unfortunate that just when we need just when the world needed an alternate reserve currency, what does Europe do but you know, suddenly reveal that it's got huge debt problems, huge budget problems, unclear that monetary union is going to continue, cast doubt on the entire European experiment, wring hands. Just when we need an alternative reserve currency, it goes and shoots itself in the foot. I don't know if the euro could still be the world's reserve currency. Right now, when you look at statistics of private companies, central banks, uh, international holding bodies who still engage in transactions in different denominated currencies, the euro comes in as a firm number two to the US dollar. The US dollar is still far and away the number one world's reserve currency. The euro remains number two. Um, that might change the yuan. The Chinese yuan, who, you know, given the description of economic activity they have described, might suggest to us would be a sensible alternative candidate, does not yet have the backing of broad, deep financial markets denominated in that currency, and so is an even more distant third. The world is in dire straits in terms of the domain of international reserve currencies, and it is precisely here that we need good thinking and good analysis about how we move forward from the international con current configuration of international power. Um, there was a question from Imperial College about why I did not mention Africa and South, South America. I didn't do so explicitly. I didn't mention huge chunks of the world. The, the graph, the map of the world that I put up shows you know, in a blanket, non-judgmental way, the kinds of activity that's happening, the kinds of growth that we see happening in different parts of the world, and much as I would like to see, you know, that's where Africa, South America is where the greatest concentration of poverty continues to, to reside. That is where internal domestic political tensions might be highest. Much as we would like to see the global economy shift because of those parts of the world taking off, they simply have not done so yet. Um, oh, 
since I'm on this topic of the the global the world's center of gravity, I tried to I was it was pointed out that I described this as fact rather than perhaps conjecture. And why didn't I tell you about how these things were calculated? Uh, a public lecture is not really an ideal location to try and go through a tutorial on the calculation of these kinds of statistics. I'm happy to refer you to the latest issue of Global Policy that uh, describes these calculations in great detail. I did try and show in my, my presentation the collection of dots in black, which were historical reality. That's just what the historical outcome has been. And the collection of dots in red, which are projection going forwards. I think I've, if I may, there are some extremely difficult questions that remain. Two of them yours, David. But you, I wonder you, you've if answered, I, you've answered one of them. You addressed one of them pretty succinctly. That uh, remains that you've got two questions left. Okay. The, <laughs> he's not going to let me get away. So okay, the question about conflict between India and China, difficult one here. Uh, most of you know what we know from from. Uh, the study of international power shifts and wars that emerge focus, and I think rightly, on what happens with the very top of the table. Smaller wars might break out, but they are containable and they are contained. The number one mega power might step in and make sure that the outcome is something that allows the global economy to continue to operate. And I think that is probably the most likely um, uh, outcome if any conflict does emerge between India and China, which I think, again, quite unlikely. Then the last question from that block is, is David's question, which is that there's a darker side to all of the, these events. And as I've usually done, I've tried to present to you the optimistic, brighter gloss on things. And I've tried to show you the case why the outcome that emerges will simply help us take us forwards to the next stage of the evolution of the global economy. The dark side of this is one that I know David and I work on at Global Governance as well, which is that there's a breakdown of traditional decision-making procedures in the world at large. We don't yet have a satisfactory replacement. There are people who have thoughts about this, but we don't have an alternative yet. And, and that, again, is a very real, very live topic for research. You're quite good at answering questions, Danny. I don't think next time you come, we won't hesitate to ask you another nine questions. In fact, actually, to put it more seriously, I think that was, that was the most succinct response to a set of questions I've heard for a very long time, which hit them all more or less head on. It's eight o'clock. I'm sure the audience would love to engage you more and ask you more questions. Um, Danny referred to his article in Global Policy, which is the um, third issue of last year. This year, no, it's the, it's the fourth issue, the issue that's just come out. It's available through the LSE at, on global policy. At the uh, website is globalpolicyjournal.com. Um, you can download it if you're at the LSE or any other major uh, institution of learning. So it just remains for me to thank Danny very much, both for his you know, seriously optimistic narrative at a time when there is so much gloom around uh, uh, and uh, they often say that economists will always tell you an optimistic story and, and uh, political scientists a uh, pessimistic story. But you have certainly sustained the, uh, sort of the optimism of uh, your profession. And I think the way you address questions was absolutely brilliant. So many thanks.